We are in our third year of battling COVID-19. About two-thirds of eligible Americans are fully vaccinated, and nearly 80% have received at least one dose. But only about 30% of those eligible to receive a booster dose have done so, which means we have some work to do here to educate the public on the importance of staying up to date on COVID-19 vaccinations. That's Dr. Susan R. Bailey, immediate past president of the AMA. In this episode of the AMA's COVID-19 update, Dr. Bailey is joined by Dr. Peter Marks, director of the Center for Biologics, Evaluation and Research at the Food and Drug Administration to discuss fourth dose boosters and developments in pediatric vaccines. This episode is part of the AMA webinar series addressing the latest developments in COVID-19, including vaccination, recent guidelines, and what physicians need to know. Hello, and thank you for joining us this afternoon for the latest in our What Physicians Need to Know series about COVID-19 and other critical issues in healthcare. I'm Dr. Susan Bailey, immediate past president of the American Medical Association, and it is my pleasure to once again welcome you in and to serve as your host for this discussion about the latest in COVID-19 vaccinations. Today, we'll be talking about second COVID-19 booster doses for those eligible to receive them, and also look at where we are on the effort to vaccinate children under the age of five. Our goal, as always, is to provide you with the latest and most accurate information available so that you're better able to counsel your patients, address their questions and concerns, and ultimately, to increase confidence in the available vaccines. Our previous sessions covered the FDA vaccine review process, vaccine development, vaccine safety and delivery, and the need to confront vaccine misinformation and disinformation. Now, if you weren't able to join us for those sessions, they're still accessible on the AMA website. We are in our third year of battling COVID-19, although it really seems much longer than that, doesn't it? Case counts are, once more, steadily rising in some areas of the country. We know those who are unvaccinated remain at the greatest risk for contracting COVID-19 and are more likely to suffer severe illness and death as a result. About two-thirds of eligible Americans are fully vaccinated, and nearly 80% have received at least one dose. But only about 30% of those eligible to receive a booster dose have done so, which means we have some work to do here to educate the public on the importance of staying up to date on COVID-19 vaccinations. As an immunologist, I can tell you that physicians play a vital role as vaccine ambassadors for our patients. To make sure that patients have their questions answered, we need to first make sure that we as physicians have a deep understanding of the vaccine and the booster development process, the scientific rigor involved, and how their effectiveness helps combat COVID-19. Today, as we explore a range of topics related to a second booster dose, provide updates on pediatric vaccine safety and efficacy, and discuss how soon a vaccine for our youngest children might be available. Joining us today is our good friend, Dr. Peter Marks. He's the director of the Food and Drug Administration Center for Biologics Evaluation and Research. Dr. Marks is also the acting director of the FDA's Office of Vaccines Research and Review. He's board certified in internal medicine, hematology, and medical oncology. 
Dr. Marks led the adult leukemia service at Yale University and served as chief clinical officer of Smilo Cancer Hospital in New Haven before joining the FDA in 2012 as the center's deputy director. In his current roles, Dr. Marks and his team are tasked with ensuring that COVID-19 vaccines are both safe and effective and that they've undergone a rigorous evidence-based and transparent process. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Peter Marks. Thanks so much. So I'll, I'll talk a little bit about a recent agency action that some may be aware of uh, on the narrowing of one of the vaccine emergency use authorizations, talk a little bit about first and second booster doses, uh, then talk, just touch upon boosters for the 2022-2023 season, because I think that's something we're going to have to start to uh, get our, our uh, heads around. So uh, the FDA undertook revision of the Janssen COVID-19 vaccine emergency use authorization uh, based on the continued occurrence of the thrombosis with thrombocytopenia syndrome. Uh, for those who might not be familiar with this, this is uh, a syndrome uh, that uh, was very rare, um, but quite striking. Uh, with the uh, Janssen vaccine. And it also occurs with other adenoviral vectored vaccines. It occurs with the AstraZeneca vaccine, which is not authorized in the United States. But um, it is uh, basically a usually blood clots in unusual locations, uh, uh, cerebral sinus vein, um, uh, mesenteric veins, uh, that is associated with pretty significant thrombocytopenia. For all the world, it looks like heparin-associated thrombocytopenia, but without the heparin. And so uh, this is uh, uh, something that occurs roughly about, we found it occurring about three and a quarter per million uh, doses of vaccine given, which is pretty rare. Unfortunately, it's associated with about one death uh, per two million doses. Um, uh, uh, and those are pretty clearly attributable uh, to the vaccination. So what this led us to do is realize that this, in the setting of the United States where we have the mRNA vaccines of which now hundreds of millions of doses have been given where we cannot identify uh, any similar risk uh, uh, that we, we felt it was appropriate to narrow this um, really to a vaccine for individuals um, who could not take uh, one of the mRNA vaccines um, uh, because uh, it was uh, clinically not appropriate because of uh, either uh, uh, allergic reactions or myocarditis, or because they were unwilling to take an mRNA vaccine and the only way they would get vaccinated is to take uh, a, a non-mRNA vaccine. You know, just to, to put this in, in context, this is a very useful vaccine still um, uh, around the globe because uh, it does not require the types of cold storage uh, that uh, the mRNA vaccines uh, require. However, where there's options like we have in the United States, we felt it was important for providers uh, uh, to know that. Um, I should just say that um, uh, the major risk with this vaccine just is, has, was, has been in individuals 18 to 50 and mainly females, although that's not totally exclusively the case. Um, uh, so we'll see whether, um, uh, whether this uh, additional work is done, whether uh, we can figure out the best population that might receive this vaccine, but this is the narrowing for now. So I just wanna move on to boosters for the general population. 
Um, uh, for the general population, you know, it's it's pretty clear. We we know now that the uh, vaccines wane over time, uh, and that's particularly true in the setting of uh, the SARS coronavirus two variants, particularly as we've come to Omicron. Um, and we now know pretty clearly that an additional vaccine dose can provide uh, a, a better immunity, preventing hospitalization and death, uh, emergency department and urgent care visits, and potentially uh, serious complications such as long COVID-19. And this last thing is something that perhaps a little bit more controversial is something that we may really have to deal with because as additional uh, data come out on the uh, neurologic complications of COVID-19 and the potential impact on the brain, um, uh, preventing long COVID-19 may be uh, one of the important uh, things that vaccination helps do uh, in that we do know that people who are vaccinated, even if they do get COVID-19, tend to have a lower subsequent rate of long COVID. Just to give you an idea of what the mRNA boosters have done during Omicron, um, uh, we can see that in terms of emergency department uh, visits, these are data from CDC, um, but there are other data that are similar from other sources um, uh, and other countries. Uh, you can see that three doses of the vaccine, uh, people who have had a, a third dose uh, of the mRNA vaccines uh, have a relatively low rate uh, of, uh, of use of emergency department or urgent care visits. Um, two doses still protects reasonably, but not quite as well. And if you look for hospitalization, you see a very similar pattern. Uh, for three doses, uh, you have vaccine effectiveness of 82% here, and uh, two doses uh, given uh, within the past six months, about 50%, 52%. And if given more than six months earlier, 38%. So again, showing this waning of protection. And it does appear that the third dose of these vaccines does uh, provide a more mature immune response uh, over just two doses. And that seems to continue out over time. Now, one of the issues that was noted was even with third doses in Omicron, uh, we still had uh, symptomatic disease, though not uh, necessarily uh, severe disease. And that's something uh, that led to the look at uh, additional doses. Um, so just to summarize to now, you know, we have boosters for the general population uh, that were um, uh, authorized and the entire population age 12 and up right now is eligible for boosters. Um, given uh, the favorable benefit risk assessment. Really just uh, one, one note there, footnote is that since the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine is the only vaccine authorized uh, uh, for uh, those uh, 12 to 17 years old, that's the only booster that can be given in that age range. But otherwise, heterologous boosting is permitted uh, for those 18 years and up. But then there's the issue of, uh, of the fact that with with Omicron, we saw waning uh, against uh, symptomatic disease, but it also uh, was looked at in Israel in terms of whether there was waning against more serious forms of disease. And um, two studies that came out of Israel showed uh, that both hospitalization and death um, uh, was uh, increased 
um, uh, and, and could the death rates and hospitalization could be reduced uh, following uh, Omicron um, uh, with a fourth booster dose. That was given at least four months uh, after um, uh, the third uh, booster dose. Um, and the data were actually, when FDA reviewed them, uh, were pretty compelling. Now, uh, the reduction in hospitalization uh, was, uh, was notable and persisted over uh, time, as well as uh, the reduction uh, in death. It is true that the reduction against symptomatic disease, more mild forms of disease against Omicron, starting somewhere about eight to 10 weeks after um, a booster dose does start to wane. Uh, but again, hospitalization and death were reduced. And the reduction of death uh, in the Israeli study was pretty notable. Um, th those uh, uh, over 60 uh, and those at risk of uh, complications uh, from uh, uh, severe complications from COVID-19 who received a fourth dose um, had an 80% reduction uh, in the risk of death after a fourth dose. So uh, in a study that was uh, considered to be well-conducted, uh, that led us uh, to authorize the fourth booster doses um, uh, for uh, individuals uh, 50 years and up. Now you might say, you might have said 60 years and up uh, for, or you might have noted that the, the Israeli studies was an individual 60 years and up and in those at risk for severe outcomes for, from COVID-19. In the United States, we've had enough experience over um, uh, what Dr. Bailey do, rightly notes as it's been three very long years. Um, um, and and somebody's, it's, it's almost like living dog years. Each one of them feels like about seven years. Um, we have developed some experience. And one of those pieces of experience is that it was very difficult for practitioners in offices to figure out when we said, uh, well, give it to people at high risk, what that really meant. Is, is my patient in front of me who's 51, who has some uh, mild reactive airway disease, are they at high risk? Um, those, those were the, the difficult ones. It wasn't the, 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 the people who had um, terrible um, COPD, those weren't the hard ones, but there were a lot of people and, and questions about this. So. It was felt that since on, uh, on par, CDC notes that about a third of Americans between the ages of 50 and 65 have some significant risk factor uh, for uh, severe COVID-19 should they uh, get it, um, it was decided that we would just move the age down to 50 and make things simpler. Um, and I, I think that actually was wise because the first time when we tried to use that risk-based approach um, it created a lot of confusion. And if there's something I guess we have learned uh, with maturation <laughs> of living through this response is that the less confusion and the more clarity we can provide um, from FDA, the better it is for providers and for public health. So um, this is how we came out uh, for uh, the, uh, the boosters. I think the one thing I will just say is a second booster or a fourth dose, um, uh, it's really important that we try to get the half or a little bit more than half of Americans who have only received two doses to get that third dose. That may make a difference moving forward here. Uh, and um, it may particularly make a difference now that we're coming into yet another 
wave of uh, COVID-19. So good idea to just try to get people up to date on their vaccination. Um, we at FDA are realizing that we are in for probably new variants in the future. Um, hopefully the next generation of COVID-19 vaccines that will come about in the next uh, year or two will be better at getting a, the whole uh, variety of SARS-CoV-2 uh, variants uh, for a more uh, robust immune response that will protect us all year long uh, or even longer um, against uh, whatever variants may uh, 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 buffet us. But um, for right now, um, uh, we have to deal with what comes along. So we have guidance out at FDA about how we will develop these new vaccines uh, and how we'll develop variant vaccines for uh, the uh, variants that have come along now. Um, one of the issues here that makes things a little complicated is that the new variants such as Omicron may not provide the same uh, immunity against some of the older variants that we've been through, like beta or delta. So as we move forward, we have to start, uh, we have to consider this, and that may mean that in the future we may see multivalent vaccines to help both protect against what we have circulating now, which is Omicron, and Omicron is moving on, as you're all well aware, um, uh, to uh, evolve somewhat and also to allow us to have protection in the event something else comes along, because that's maybe the second piece of learning, besides having clear um, uh, public health messaging, the second learning is these pandemics seem to do whatever they want. And no matter how good we think we are at predicting things, we will almost always be wrong. So we have to be prepared to be wrong and have contingency plans. Um, so, um, we did recently have an advisory committee meeting on April 6th um, uh, to think about boosters moving forward. Um, and uh, really, we are a little concerned about where we're headed with fall to winter 2022-2023. We suspect that this current bump, we'll see how wrong I am with this prediction, we suspect that this current bump we're having will probably reach some modest peak uh, in the next month or so, and then we'll have a, a decline again. Um, and then uh, we'll have to deal with the fact that um, even though we may have a good late summer, relatively speaking, um, we're going to have to deal with the fact that we will have waning immunity over the coming months, uh, that the virus is going to continue to evolve. Uh, there will be global circulation. It will be winter in places uh, in the Southern Hemisphere. Uh, people will be indoors. Um, the virus will have plenty of chance uh, to uh, become uh, more problematic. Um, and then we ourselves uh, next fall, uh, usually in the November, December timeframe, depending on whether you're more north uh, or more south, will start to move indoors as well. And that combination um, uh, makes us concerned that we could have a wave at some point next uh, next fall, winter. And for that reason, we're thinking about a, a booster campaign somewhat along uh, the timing of our uh, fall, winter influenza campaign. It uh, could be very timely and very convenient to have people in the October timeframe get both um, influenza and uh, COVID-19 vaccinated. So we'll see, um, uh, we'll see how that works out. Um, there is uh, one of the things that came from this advisory committee 
uh, is that generally, right now we have a variety of different uh, vaccines, uh, but we think that the composition of any boosters should be the same across those different vaccine uh, platforms, if at all possible. Again, to allow that kind of practical um, heterologous boosting so we don't have to have providers so worried that if somebody uh, got X vaccine, they have to get X booster. You took care of the nation. It's time for the nation to take care of you. The AMA stood by America's physicians and patients during the pandemic, and we're not stopping there. We're fixing prior authorization, leading the charge on Medicare payment reform, supporting telehealth, fighting scope creep, and reducing physician burnout. It's time to rebuild, and the AMA is ready. To learn more about the AMA Recovery Plan for America's Physicians, go to ama-assn.org slash time to rebuild. Um, our next booster advisory committee uh, will be in late June. And at that point, uh, we will review the data on the variant vaccines uh, from various sources, uh, including the manufacturers, the National Institutes of Health, and the World Health Organization. And we'll be looking at both monovalent vaccine data and bivalent vaccine data. Again, it's a little bit of um, uh, a, a, a challenge here because we don't know how much further the uh, virus will evolve over the next few months, but we have no choice because if we want to produce uh, the hundreds of millions of doses that need to be available for a booster campaign, we have to start at risk um, uh, in the early July timeframe or even, uh, even somewhat sooner uh, to uh, get the, up to those kind of, uh, of numbers. So uh, this is where uh, we will have to do uh, use our best guesses, and that's why some, somehow the bivalents seem a little bit attractive here to be able to uh, provide us with uh, a, a little bit of wiggle room. But we'll see what the uh, uh, what the advisory committee says whether we feel like there's a monovalent that can do the job, or, or whether we need bivalents. Um, and uh, uh, we also at that advisory committee there may be some discussion of whether this should be a general population recommendation or whether there will be appropriate target populations. Okay. And now to what probably people might wanna hear most about, this has usually been the most popular topic recently, um, uh, the pediatric um, uh, data and when will we have it for the youngest children. Um, uh, the pediatric uh, population for vaccine development has been divided into three major groups. Um, uh, the 12 to 17s, five or six uh, to 11s, uh, and the uh, six months to uh, five or sixes. Um, and then the youngest age group studied has been uh, further divided out so that uh, safety and immunogenicity in the six month to two year olds is kind of called out uh, separately as well. Um, these trials are focusing on safety and immunogenicity, but because we've had a fair amount of uh, circulating virus, they've also captured vaccine efficacy whenever possible. And uh, some of that uh, is what uh, uh, created some of the challenges in the January timeframe um, as vaccine efficacy uh, in the youngest children seemed to be quite off um, when truly it was probably just mirroring what uh, vaccine efficacy against, uh, uh, against Omicron was. Uh, in terms of uh, symptomatic disease, but that's a story for another day. 
Um, I, and we, just to remind people of the way these trials are done, uh, in general, uh, these are uh, immunobridging studies where we work our way down uh, from uh, an older population. Uh, in the uh, case of, just, this is just using Pfizer as an example, uh, the 12 to 15 year old population, uh, they, they considered 16 to 25 year olds adults. So they uh, immunobridged um, uh, using their adult dose. Um, and you can see here the, the geometric mean titer ratio uh, between the 12 to 15 year olds and the 16 to 25 year olds was excellent at 1.76. Uh, so clearly, um, uh, they uh, achieved non-inferiority. You know, that ratio may have been as good as it was either by luck or by the fact that 12 to 15-year-olds overall may weigh less uh, than uh, 16 to 25-year-olds. It could have been a combination of both. And you can see here, uh, bridging down to the 5 to 11-year-olds, similarly here, um, uh, 5 to 11-year-olds, where they reduced the dose by a third uh, to 10 micrograms, uh, from uh, 30 micrograms uh, had a GMT ratio of 1.04, pretty much right on the nose of where you'd want to immunobridge. Um, uh, efficacy in the adolescents, this was that the, the, the 12 to 15 year olds, we didn't have a lot of Delta around at that point, and they had excellent efficacy here with no cases of COVID-19 in the uh, vaccinated individuals versus 16 in the placebo. Uh, about a thousand cases uh, uh, on each side of this equation. So um, uh, it was uh, a, a nice demonstration of clinical efficacy. In the era where we started to have Delta, uh, when the five to 11 year olds uh, were uh, vaccinated, um, uh, this is now noting a, a two to one randomization here. So you have to do a little, a little correcting in your head, um, also had quite reasonable vaccine uh, efficacy. And uh, just to show you here, um, the, uh, the vaccine safety here is always something that we care about very much. Um, uh, you can see here the placebo uh, versus the vaccinated uh, 12 to 15 year olds, and then the uh, age 16 to 25 uh, vaccinated individuals. And you see that the, the, the 30 microgram dose in 12 to 15 year olds was very similar uh, to the uh, adults. Interestingly, uh, went with de-escalation uh, of the dose uh, by, uh, uh, by uh, two-thirds to 10 micrograms, um, uh, although injection uh, site pain was similar. Um, uh, the amount of fatigue, headache, muscle pain um, uh, seemed to be somewhat less um, in the, uh, uh, in the uh, vaccinated individuals. Whether this is a chance or not, not it's possible uh, but it may well reflect the fact that the, the dose uh, was backed off a little bit here. So what about the youngest children? Um, so really, uh, in, in children five years and, and less, um, we actually obviously have to further dose de-escalate. Um, uh, we have to make sure we have an adequate number of children. And um, we have to be careful about our benefit risk. I am not a pediatrician, uh, but um, having uh, uh, covered uh, uh, for uh, pediatric bone marrow transplant units and having been around kids growing up, um, uh, high fevers in young children um, are not ideal um, because of uh, the risk of uh, febrile seizures uh, occasionally. 
Um, so we are very cognizant of, of worries about um, understanding the side effect profile um, uh, in these vaccines in the youngest children. Um, there are completed trials from uh, two sponsors in the process of um, uh, submission uh, and review, and we are moving as fast as we can to review these, uh, and whichever of these uh, gets there as quickly as they can, we'll get to the advisory committees uh, as quickly as we can. Um, there is a chance that we might have uh, the two meet, uh, the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines meet in the middle somewhere, um, but we're not going to hold anything back here um, uh, uh, because we really, we, we hear very much from parents how desperate they are to uh, have uh, these vaccines. That said, we have to do it right um, because we need parents to feel confidence to get their kids vaccinated. Um, we're still suffering a challenge of vaccine confidence here. Um, uh, it's only about 30, 25 to 30% uh, of uh, five to 11 year olds are vaccinated. I think that latest uh, might have gone up as high as 30 to 35 now uh, from just looking at some data from CDC this morning. Um, but um, we wanna make sure that uh, people are confident that we have really looked at these vaccines closely uh, and with our usual rigor. Uh, and so our reviewers will do that. Um, in terms of our upcoming advisory committees, uh, we have, um, uh, uh, a uh, advisory committee at meeting at the beginning of uh, June uh, on uh, the Novavax uh, COVID-19 vaccine. That is a protein-based vaccine with a novel adjuvant. Um, it will be nice to have an additional option. There are individuals who still are uncomfortable with the mRNA vaccines uh, or who have contraindications to them. It will be nice to have a protein-based vaccine uh, for administration. Um, uh, uh, there's actually even a second protein-based vaccine following along a little bit uh, behind it uh, from Sanofi. Uh, so we can expect those uh, hopefully. Uh, and uh, we obviously have the review of the Moderna and Pfizer pediatric uh, COVID-19 vaccine requests and then uh, the vaccine uh, composition selection. Uh, so if anyone is like running out of TV to watch um, uh, over uh, the month of June, you can certainly tune in to FDA TV uh, as this will all be streamed uh, uh, from our advisory committee meetings. So with that, I'll stop over to you, Dr. Bailey. Oh, thanks so much for another uh, amazing uh, and informative presentation. Um, it's really clear that physicians still have uh, a lot uh, on their minds and a lot that they need to sort out uh, about COVID-19 vaccines. And of course, the interest uh, level is still very high. Um, first, I want to ask some questions about um, COVID-19 boosters or third, fourth doses um, in um, in adults. Um, now, th there's a lot of concern about the timing of boosters, um, especially if, um, as um, yours truly has experienced, had a uh, breakthrough infection in the meantime. So if someone had their first booster, so their third dose <laughs> of vaccine, say four to five months ago, uh, and they got sick, so they had a breakthrough infection, should they delay receiving the fourth booster another four to five months? Should that be after the last booster or after the breakthrough infection? Yeah, really, really good question. And uh, CDC uh, is recommending that that be considered. Um, uh, from the data that we see, again, uh, 
it, it may make sense. It's, uh, the, the, it's been said maybe to delay by about three months, uh, uh, that booster um, after an episode of Omicron, uh, because we know that the immunity after Omicron, uh, after a natural immunity, uh, uh, natural infection with Omicron tends to wane over that time. Uh, so whether it's three, four or five months you wait, uh, it's uh, uh, perhaps a, a judgment call, um, but that is something that's been uh, uh, been uh, recommended as something that can be done. Now, I will say there's nothing, the, the CDC will tell you just as I will, that there's nothing wrong if somebody decides to go get vaccinated. It's just probably not going to help uh, a whole lot um, over the natural um, uh, infection at that point. Now, I, I was really intrigued uh, um, with your comments on, um, you know, assessing the efficacy of the fourth booster and how that relates to, um, you know, we're starting to, you know, language that's starting to sound like flu vaccine language, you know, the 22-23 season, you know, which variants we're going to be looking at and, and might be uh, included. Um, but I'm Getting questions from my patients, and I'm sure uh, many of our audience uh, are as well, um, if someone could be eligible to receive a fourth booster right now, I'm hearing patients ask, well, I'm thinking about waiting until, you know, fall to get that so that I'll have better coverage for next winter. Uh, is there any reason to consider postponing your fourth booster if you're due for one now? Yeah. So if you if you haven't had COVID recently, um, uh, or or you don't know that you've had COVID because uh, uh, you haven't been symptomatic, um, I think the 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 answer would be if you're eligible, there's probably no reason right now today uh, to uh, put it off uh, to getting that booster. Why? Because it's going to be four, five, six months before we get to. Uh, when you get your uh, your next booster, so if you if you say June, July, August, September, October ish, um, you're talking about having uh, several months there at, at risk. So if it's been that long, uh, you're probably putting yourself at additional at additional risk during that time. There's no evidence that we have that we're getting uh, we're getting immune senescence with these mRNA vaccines here. So um, it seems to me that um, uh, especially for those older individuals um, who could be at, at risk of severe outcomes, it, that's that's one of the things that led us to uh, authorize those uh, those fourth doses or second booster doses. Um, so I, I I wouldn't. You know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go crazy about that. Now, if you haven't had, I mean, there are, there are people out there um, who are uh, over 50 years old who haven't had their third dose. Those people, rather than just being casual about it, I would urge them uh, to try to get that third dose uh, to uh, ramp up the immunity, just because we, we do have plenty of circulating COVID-19. And there are some of us um, I, again, this is uh, not official U.S. government. This is just uh, based on, uh, on, on the experience of what we know probably is happening, that the numbers that we have right now for COVID cases probably are an underestimate um, because many of the mild cases 
um, are probably not being reported the same way they were at, at previously because of all of the home testing, which means there's probably a fair amount of COVID-19 circulating. Again, mild cases, not a big deal, um, but if you, know, you are a person at risk and you get one of them, um, that could be a problem for you. You, you mentioned, um, you know, immune senescence. Um, you know, another way of thinking about it is the point of diminishing returns on the boosters. Is there a concern that with, you know, booster after booster, especially if it's the same formulation, that we are going to reach the point of diminishing returns? Yeah, I, I, mean, I think that that is one of the reasons why perhaps uh, it will, I think that you'll hear that conversation come up um, in the uh, June uh, meeting about whether it probably makes sense to shift composition here um, uh, to uh, one of the, uh, either to a different single variant uh, or a, to a, uh, a bivalent vaccine or multivalent vaccine uh, so that uh, we uh, shake up the immune system a little bit um, uh, in, in this case. Um, the, the, I mean, the good news is vaccines with four boosters are not unheard of, um, with, or, or three or four doses are not unheard of. Um, uh, so it, it's not like what we're doing here is totally uh, ground, uh, you know, path breaking here. Um, it, it just is, uh, it would be nice to have something that was more durable um, because I'm less worried about this fatigues of our immune systems, which our immune systems are very kind to us. They, they just go and they take care of us day after day. I'm worried more about our, our emotional uh, and uh, uh, intellectual fatigue with getting vaccinated uh, causing us a problem. And that's one of the reasons why I think you'll see a lot of work towards developing uh, more robust uh, vaccinations uh, that are, or vaccines that can uh, lead us to have uh, durable immunity because we will not be able to. I mean, I, I'm I'm the first to admit that I think that if we were to have to say that we're going to continue doing every uh, five or six month uh, vaccines for this um, uh, infectious disease, we we're going to have some real challenges here. Um, I agree. Um, I have, you know, I, my patients. I've certainly heard a lot of fatigue. I, I've been amazed at. Uh, the number of patients that are eligible for boosters that just haven't even thought about getting one. Um, and I, I think that um, we need to, you know, be thinking about, you know, what is what is the definition of fully vaccinated? And um, is it two? Is it three? Is it four? Because there's a lot of confusion amongst, I think, the healthcare community as well as uh, among patients. Um, so, you know, bringing up the, you know, bivalent vaccines, you know, that makes me wonder, you know, is there an advantage of mixing and matching, if you will, um, you know, boosters? at this point in time? Um, does it, you know, how, does it give additional benefits or are there any additional risks? Yeah, so I, I, don't, I don't know that there are any additional risks that we see. And th there are data that suggests that even mixing and matching, clearly mixing and matching the um, mRNA and the, uh, and the adenoviral vectored vaccines appear to have um, uh, some uh, there may be some benefit there, um, uh, but there's even a suggestion from uh, some publications. And I, again, I can't 
We have not reviewed them internally at FDA with the, in terms of the actual data, so I can't, I can't comment for sure, but um, at least on face value, they seem to suggest that even mixing uh, and matching the uh, mRNA vaccines, the Pfizer and the Moderna, there might be somewhat of a more uh, robust response in, in doing so in, in terms of ex expanding the spectrum um, uh, of the immune response. So uh, that's why generally what I've, I've told people is don't think a lot about which of these you've gotten. If, you, if, if it makes you feel more, really, if it makes you feel more comfortable to get the same thing every time, probably go ahead and do it. If they don't have the same thing, it's totally good. Maybe you'll get a better, uh, a, a somewhat better immune response. I think probably the differences though are probably small. And the good news is we have not seen any evidence that there's a, you know, there's an adverse effect of, uh, of, of mixing and matching. Great. Um, now, given the fact that, um, you know, antibody levels uh, seem to have a fairly rapid drop off after um, uh, immunization, do we have any long-term data on uh, T cell responses? Uh, <clears throat> Yeah, so we're starting to gather more of those data, and I think that you you've probably you've probably read uh, papers on T cell mediated immunity in in COVID nineteen. It's become more uh, of uh, coming more to the fore here. The challenge has always been with uh, assays for T cell responses are much more challenging to do uh, than the assays. Uh, for antibody-mediated responses in terms of automating them, et cetera. But there are now some automated ways to do these. And I, I suspect that uh, over the coming months, we'll start to hear more and more uh, about T-cell-mediated immunity because really importantly, as we start to look at next-generation vaccines, um, the antibody responses will be important as a starter um, to get started on the work. Um, but understanding the T cell responses are going to be critical to understanding whether they're really generating a more robust response that might be more durable um, uh, compared to the current generation of vaccines. So we have to do the work here. Um, uh, and uh, I think what happened was initially we, we went with what was, what was most convenient. Um, uh, it wasn't for lack of trying even. Um, uh, but what uh, what came out as immune correlates or potential immune correlates were mostly antibody uh, responses. But um, I think continued work will hopefully elucidate what T cells are actually doing here. Medicine doesn't stand still and neither do we. AMA members don't just keep up with medicine, they shape its future. Help move medicine, join the movement. Visit ama-assn.org slash movingmedicine. A couple more questions about um, the boosters, and then I'm going to move on to talk about safety updates and pediatric vaccines. Um, first of all, uh, what about pregnant women? What are the recommendations for boosters uh, in pregnant women? Yeah, I just like they are, we would do exactly what you we would do for the rest of the population. Pregnant women should just basically um, as 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 for as if you were not pregnant. So, um, so they should, should they get fourth doses or um, are they still considered at high risk? I, I think uh, they are. Uh, I see what you're saying. I see what yeah. you're saying. No, I would, I would, they, 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 they are, they, a pregnant woman who is, who it was, would be, would be eligible for up to three doses at this point. 
unless they had some other immunocompromising condition. Uh, and if they had an, an immunocompromising condition, uh, then uh, you would potentially have uh, eligibility for um, uh, what would be a fourth dose. But honestly, at that point, it's actually <laughs> three primary doses and a booster dose. But we could we could we could go for that. Uh, we, that's another. It gets gets to a more complicated situation um, because we did actually um, uh, authorize up to two booster doses for those. Um, who were immunocompromised. So immunocompromised individual would be a different, uh, a different issue, but we don't consider your average healthy pregnant woman to be um, an immunocompromised person. Okay. Uh, what about uh, fourth doses for healthcare professionals? Yeah, interesting, interesting. <laughs> so there again, we, uh, the feeling was that uh, we, the way the study was done was not in uh, in healthcare providers, but in individuals uh, at, at high risk of complications from COVID-19 or, um, uh, or, or people over the age in the Israel was over 60. We obviously modified that to 50 and over. I think this goes to, Dr. Bailey, this goes to your issue of the fact that our T-cells, the T-cells in your healthcare workers, they're, they're, doing, uh, they're, they're doing us right. Uh, and um, uh, the risk there um, is probably of mild, in, in what we see in younger individuals, of, of mild to moderate COVID, which does not result in hospitalization. Um, and, and so provided they've had their first booster, three doses total of the mRNA, um, uh, a younger healthcare uh, provider um, is, is probably okay. Uh, so, so that kind of leads me into my last booster question. Uh, is anyone looking at um, uh, boosters in healthy um, adults under the age of 50? Uh, in other words, another dose, uh, another dose, uh, fourth dose in that, in that population. Right. Good question. Um, they're looking at them in terms of some of the, of the variant vaccines, uh, but uh, not, for, not for deployment. Um, broadly at this point, to my knowledge. I, I, they, I, and I, I may be missing, I, I apologize if someone's aware of, of, of a study that I'm not at this point. I trust your judgment um, and your memory better than mine. Um, so in terms of safety updates, um, is there any update on the incidence of myocarditis from the vaccine, um, not only in adolescents and young adult males, but really across the spectrum uh, in women? Uh, you know, in, in my personal experience, the fear of myocarditis has been uh, a major issue in um, um, talking to, you know, parents of my patients about uh, their, you know, children getting vaccinated. Um, and how does the incidence of myocarditis uh, compare with the incidence of myocarditis with COVID-19 infection itself? Uh, well, let, let's start with the easiest one. The incidence of myocarditis um, with COVID infection is, is, is several fold, it's higher than uh, with uh, vaccination with the mRNA vaccines, even the second dose of the mRNA vaccines, which is where the, the risk of myocarditis is highest. So um, getting COVID-19 is a bad thing to do for myocarditis. So good to be vaccinated to help uh, prevent that. Um, what we have seen now, we're, we're understanding the risk of myocarditis better. We, we now understand that good news for those parents of five to 11 year olds, 
we really don't see myocarditis. I mean, it, it's very rare in younger children, okay, less than, uh, less than uh, 12 years old. We start to see it come up somewhat uh, in, uh, in adolescents. Uh, the risk of myocarditis probably peaks somewhere uh, between about 16 and 24 years of age. Um, and in fact, there's some uh, indication it might peak even highest around the, the 16 to 18 year age range. And then it starts to come downward. And then the tail, it tails off between age 30 to 40. You don't really see, again, older individuals, very uncommon. Um, mostly males, not exclusively, but mostly males. Um, uh, and uh, the risk after the first dose is lowest after the, it, it appears to be the highest after the second uh, of the doses, um, given either three or four weeks after. And then uh, it, it tends to uh, be somewhere intermediate uh, between the first and second doses for the booster dose. Um, and you may have noted that uh, in CDC guidance, um, they have suggested that it's not unreasonable if you're concerned, if, if the choice is not to get vaccinated or to get vaccinated and to put eight weeks between the first and second dose, better to get vaccinated and give uh, and have the additional time uh, because there's some data from a Canadian study uh, that suggests that putting that additional uh, four or five weeks between the first and second doses um, uh, seems to reduce the risk of myocarditis. Now, I'm not sure in the middle of a pandemic that that's, we, it's, it's always the best thing to do, but if the, if the choice is not getting vaccinated versus getting vaccinated because you feel like you're more comfortable um, getting uh, a dose uh, you know, two months after the first, better to get vaccinated. Um, so I, I think, um, although it might sound a little loosey-goosey, um, uh, compared to our normal vaccine schedules, which are very uh, prescribed. Um, uh, if this helps get uh, more uh, people vaccinated, it's a good thing. Um, shifting gears a little bit, um, talking about um, flu vaccines, um, do, what is the status of a combination influenza and COVID vaccinations? I know that there's been some work done on that. Yeah, I think this is, this is something, this is a coming attraction possibly for the 2023-2024 season. It's just that it's not together yet for this coming season. And I just, I can explain to you why. Influenza vaccine manufacture is something that is, uh, the, the bulk of our influenza vaccine, about 80% of it, is made by a relatively old technology, embryonated chicken eggs. And that manufacturing process for this year's flu vaccine started at risk last February. Uh, so, well, this past February. Mm -hmm. and, and the problem is that the, the ability to make some novel vaccine that would have both um, uh, the uh, COVID-19 vaccine and uh, the flu vaccine in it, so it was a, a, a combi vaccine, just was not there for this year. Hopefully next year, um, uh, there will be uh, more of a possibility of that, both because we'll have um, we'll have kind of the the uh, the background of knowing what we're going to do for strain selection in place more uh, uh, earlier on, and um, uh, the manufacturers will have had time uh, potentially to generate better COVID nineteen vaccines that, when combined, will be confident 
uh, will give long lasting protection because part of what we're doing here by waiting uh, for production of the COVID-19 vaccines um, is trying to get the best match we possibly can. We take our chances with influenza vaccines because we do that year to year. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, I think we, we'd like to try to maintain the best efficacy that we can um, with our COVID-19 vaccines. Remember the COVID-19 vaccines um, have a different level of effectiveness generally compared to influenza vaccine. Influenza vaccines, even on a good year, um, are less than perfect. You know, they're basically efficacy, effectiveness of 50% is a considered a, a good thing for a flu vaccine um, uh, against one of the circulating uh, strains. So uh, we've been lucky with the COVID-19 vaccines and hopefully as we come into the 23-24 season, we'll be able to uh, have a, a tuned up bunch of uh, COVID-19 vaccines so that when we have to combine them late on in the, in the process, um, uh, it will be um, something that will allow us to vaccinate with confidence in, in the September, October timeframe. The one thing we're lucky about is that although production begins for influenza vaccines in, uh, uh, in February, that's for as they make the bulk vaccines uh, which they then, and since we have typically have four different, uh, you know, two A's and two B's uh, in our flu and uh, our multivalent flu vaccines, by the time they're actually formulated together, uh, it's later on in, in the spring. Uh, and so hopefully when we merge them together in early, uh, or late spring, early summer, um, that would allow for a combination vaccine. So it's not quite as bad as having to be ready um, in February. So I don't want to don't want to give anyone the wrong impression. Well, I want to wrap up. There were a lot of questions, uh, understandably, about pediatric vaccines and um, especially regarding the youngest age group, you know, six months to five years of age. Lots of concern and questions about why it's taking so long, uh, the delay in authorization, um, you know, why you're not meeting until the end of June. Um, tell me, you know, why it's taking so long and when do you expect we'll have decisions? There are a lot of anxious well, parents well, out there. Well, yeah, I know there are a lot of anxious parents. So let me, let me. There's a, there are a combination of things. First of all, we won't wait till the end of June if we get through our review uh, sooner, right? We'll move things up as much as we can. So that, right. that I've committed and um, I, I've committed to uh, Congress actually on that as well. Um, but importantly, I think one of the things that, that was a little challenging here is that um, there are, there are a couple things. First of all, this is a more complex submission than some of the previous submissions because we're not dealing with just one variant. We're dealing with multiple variants uh, over time that we have to kind of interpret uh, the data in, in light of. Uh, additionally, we're dealing with a population that we look at, we look at the safety always very carefully, but for the youngest children, uh, we um, uh, are really even under a a, a stronger microscope. Um, but just as an, another aside, unfortunately, the hype about this started last February when we thought we were going uh, to, uh, uh, to take it to an advisory committee then. It's continued and there's been a lot, lot of noise. And so it feels longer than it's actually been uh, because we have to have a complete file before we can actually uh, start to do our uh, formal, I mean, we can start some of the work, but we can't do uh, some of the formal analyses. And 
that hasn't happened until very recently and is still, <laughs> uh, it, you'll probably hear from each of the sponsors when they fully complete uh, their submissions. So we, we get it. Uh, and although we put dates out there so that people knew kind of the latest that we might get there, um, uh, we will potentially move things up if we can um, to, uh, you know, because we see this, we also see what something you noticed as well, that in the setting of increasing cases, uh, that's leading people's anxiety to rise. Last question is going to be about the the, the grave concern that you know, many have about um, injury from the vaccines, uh, the potential for that in this very young age group, and the perception that um, the risk of getting a COVID vaccine when you're very young is much greater than the risk of getting COVID. Um, can you, you know, quickly address that and, and help allay people's fears? Yeah, so um, look, there, we've gotten a lot of letters that say, well, uh, that you know, 99.995 uh, uh, of kids that get COVID do just fine with it. Unfortunately, uh, if you're one of the several hundred parents who's had children under the age of five die from COVID-19, that's no consolation. And we don't accept that for our other infectious diseases that come across. We wouldn't accept that for influenza. We don't want to, even though we have to sometimes. Um, uh, we shouldn't accept it. Um, and so we, we need to you know, apply the same standards we would for other infectious diseases like influenza to, um, uh, to COVID-19 uh, to, you know, to protect our children. Um, I, I don't have you know, any concern that uh, these vaccines have been used in so many individuals in, in down in low enough age ranges now that I think we can be confident in their safety. I don't think we, we can be confident in telling parents it's not gonna change the genetic makeup of their children, um, which is a very common thing that seems to be spreading. Um, uh, there's, you know, there's, there's just no, that's just wildly, um, uh, untrue types of rumors circulating. So we need to try to help people understand that when we say these are authorized, they will be safe and effective. And the benefit risk here, even though COVID is not that common in terms of severe disease, it's frequent enough around the country right now that when it affects millions of kids, hundreds of deaths are just not it's just not, we don't consider that acceptable in any way, shape, or form. Thank you. I want to express my sincere thanks to Dr. Marks for once again lending his expertise and guiding this critically important discussion. Uh, and I'm going to raise a point of personal privilege. Dr. Marks, I'd like to congratulate you. Earlier this year, you were um, awarded the AMA Award for Outstanding uh, uh, Public Service, and uh, we congratulate you on that. Thank you. You can subscribe to the COVID-19 Update and other great AMA podcasts anywhere you listen to yours or visit ama-assn.org slash podcasts. Thanks for listening.